0: As a universalist, I really, you know, do believe that what we're called to do in in this world is, you know, make it a bright, bright, sunshiny day for everyone or as many people as we can. Now, as a Giants fan, like I am, (laughs) it's going to be a bright or a cloudy day for one of us today. That's why I wore red. Because I didn't want to wear blue, and sorry, hell if I'm wearing green today. (laughs) Of course, the Steelers fan, John in the back, said you should have just gone with black and gold and, you know, gone with the real team. (laughs) So, good luck. (laughs) Last week, I talked about holding yes and no together, about maintaining in our lives paradox capability. And that one of the hallmarks of experiencing and knowing that we're experiencing spiritual growth is that we can know simultaneously fact and feeling that are complex and sometimes even contradictory and not have those experiences make us fold, but instead thrive through those things. So I thought I'd start this morning with this little counterintuitive nugget, which is that physical health improves in tough economic times. You wouldn't think that, would you? It's not what I thought, and it's actually not what a professor of economics, Chris Rum, at the University of North Carolina, thought. He tested this absolutely accepted idea that, w- that sickness follows recessions. In fact, he studied every recession, every business cycle, every economic cycle since the 1970s, at least, in this country, and he found that driving deaths go down possibly because people are both healthfully drinking less and eating less out with less money to spend. But deaths from heart attacks, strokes, flu, pneumonia, all go down. People lose weight, not eating out as much. And trust me, the next time a recession rolls around, and hopefully we get out of this one quickly, and the next one is a ways in the future, someone will write the recession diet and try to sell it. The theory as Professor rum says, is that when times are hard, people can control only the things they can control. And so they start to live healthily. Now, before we see too much of a silver lining in the otherwise dark cloud of where our finances are, perhaps right now, before you think it's all good news, suicide, anxiety, depression, these all increase as GDP decreases as another layer of paradox, because if you would have asked me, I would have thought just naturally I would have correlated both physical health and mental well-being as going hand-in-hand. But in fact, at least according to this study, they don't. They're different and disparate. So I start here this morning. I start here this morning because all of us, we're all trying to figure out in one way or another what's happening to us right now. It's the state of our country, our economy, our nation, our world. We want to figure out what's happening and the implication of what's going to happen to us. It's one of our core values here at Wellsprings, that we honestly evaluate where we are in the hopes of courageously going where we are called to be. I'm going to repeat that. We honestly evaluate where we are in the hopes of courageously going, courageously going where we are called to be. I think that's really important in all of our lives right now. Break it down even a little bit further. We want to know honestly what is so that we can hopefully ask what if. Honestly know what is so we can honestly ask ourselves with hope what if. All of us are wrestling with this challenge right now in this uncertain hour. We want to diminish fear's harmful effect and increase the presence of an authentic hope. What a professor of mine called a sober hope, a grounded hope, grounded in reality, grounded in not some sense of flight of fancy or fantasy, but a hope that really can sustain us through the dark and difficult times of our lives. We all have a tendency, and I will speak most firmly from my own experience, we all have a tendency to lose perspective, become unbalanced in times of prolonged stress. We obsess or perhaps we escape. This right here, my 401k statement. <laughs> Haven't opened it yet. <laughs> the paper is printed on were something, right? Hmm. Now, I could say, if you ask me, did you look at it? Yeah, I looked at it. But that's at a distance. That's the form of, you know, not wanting to face what is. Now you could also ask me, and perhaps some of us are really, really doing this right now. Have you looked at it? Yes, I've looked at it. I've looked at it. And I can't see the rest of the world. Because all I do, or perhaps all I want to do, is just see exactly where I stand. Or you want to see exactly where you stand. That's the obsessive part. When we do that, we are blinded. And we can say, yes, truly, I know where my 401k is. I know my financial statement. We can look at something and know the facts. And also not get the truth. We can watch the NBC all day long or check our stocks online all day long. And absolutely miss our lives. So I want to offer you one model and one counterexample this morning about maintaining, about how to maintain balance through a tough time. Meet, as many of you know, Marge Gunderson and Ed Tom Bell, Francis McDormand, and of course, Tommy Lee Jones. They are from, I think most of you, or probably some of you at least have seen this movie. I'll try not to give too much away it's Fargo and No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers, I think, by far, two most excellent, extraordinary, extraordinarily good movies. And Fargo, of course, is ludicrously funny. I mean, you know, Garrison Keillor aside, the Coen brothers have taken more laughs out of the state of Minnesota than anyone else has ever been able to. No Country for Old Men, not so amusing. But both, in their own way, really wrestle with the experience of human violence, chaos, what the theologians would call the problem of evil in all of its forms. And these two law officers, they stand at the center of each of these stories, and they really are very much parallel stories. Take a look at both the movies again. They really are like bookends to each other. Ed Tom Bell. If you remember the end of the movie, the final scene is him. And he's sitting at his table, his coffee table, talking to his wife. And the story has come to as much a conclusion as we are going to get. Not closure, but conclusion. And he's speaking about this dream he's had very obliquely. And we hit this sense that even though he has done his job as best as he can, he is haunted absolutely haunted by what he has witnessed, by the fear, the uncertainty, the violence. And so his story ultimately ends a very sad and tragic one. Marge Gunderson. She sees and knows and does her job in the face of violence and chaos and cruelty. And that penultimate scene where she's finally gotten one of the kidnappers. Beautiful, funny scene. She says all this, and I'm not going to try the Minnesota accent. I cannot do it justice in the way Frances McDormand does. She says all this for a little bit of money. And then those final words. I don't understand. That saves her. I don't understand doesn't mean she's not going to show up. It doesn't mean she's not going to do what she has to do. In fact, she does it very, very well. And then we see in the final scene what she does understand. You know, she's pregnant the entire movie, and that's not by accident. She's carrying this life around inside of her, even while she's dealing with the chaos outside of her. And she gets into bed with her husband at the end, who's, let's face it, not the brightest bulb that there is, And they just sort of cuddle and talk about each other's day. And she doesn't quite tell him what she's seen. And those final words, I love you, Margie. It's a grace note. A note of grace in an uncertain world. Recognizing that we don't understand, controlling what we can control, doing what we can do, and letting the rest drop. Meet Marge Gunderson. Learn from her. Now, I want to share with you right now what is my most consistent, not biggest, not the one that always really keeps me up at nights, but the most consistent uncertainty that I face in my life on a regular basis. The blank screen. The blank screen. I call this one the anxiety of openness every week when I sit to take my message notes, this blank, it taunts me. It's not full yet. It's empty. And I got to tell you, for years, this blank taunted me so much that I would save up all that energy, all that anxiety, indeed all that fear, until I had to get it done. Until I absolutely had it the last minute, and this is many, many years ago in my ministry. I've gotten a lot better since then, and in fact, my preaching's gotten better because of it as well. It's kind of like um, I was a a sponge. And you know, you, you can wring a sponge tremendously. You can really, really get in, and it will produce its water. But eventually, it will run dry. Grinding things out is very different from creating something I have come to learn. See, because creativity is really an act of faith. It is an act of trusting that there is abundance before we even know that there is abundance. One of my favorite movies I just saw again this past week, Almost Famous, great movie. And they don't really get correctly this quote by the German poet Goethe. But the way it's rendered in Almost Famous is this, is be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. Be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. Just make an effort. When I sit and I write and I fill that blank space, I make an effort even before I know I'm making any sense at all. Just right, I say to myself, just follow the spirit of what if and have trust enough to embrace the possible and see if it can become real. Just let it go and let it flow. Just try. Just trust. That is how in my life, and I think you will find examples in your life as well, that's how a specific fear is answered. From a specific fear, try a general form of hope. But fear works the other way as well. You know that all-encompassing 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. fear, or perhaps it visits you at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, or at 6 o'clock at night. That all-encompassing feel when you fear when you can't do what I just did, when you can't breathe in, when the air seems like maybe it gets to the back of your throat and then you exhale real quickly, that kind of catastrophic sense that, oh my God, everything is falling apart. My answer to this when I experienced this, and thankfully I experienced less than I used to, but I think we all have moments like this. You want to know what I do when I have one of those moments of catastrophizing? I clean up the bunny poop. (laughs) I sweep the rabbit pen from our pet rabbits, or I make the bed or I wash the dishes, and then also what I'll do next is I'll go and I'll spend some time in prayer, just sitting with it. See, if we start to fear everything, it is so critical for all of us to remember that we can still do something. If we fear everything, it's so important to remember that we can do something. Generalized fears are best met with specific, even very small acts of hope, of affirming, again, what we can give shape to, what we can control, and affirming what is really there. I was talking about before, the specific fears... They work in the other way, engaging that general hope by reaching out to those what-if moments, trusting that they will be there even though we are not fully grounded in them yet, just making an effort and giving up control. See, because false hope is a fantasy and false fear is experiencing isolation, and we become lost in both. We're trying to avoid here together in all of our lives false hope or false fear. That's why we want to know truly what if and truly what is. Some religion and some forms of religion, unfortunately, can peddle some of the worst false hope and false fear that there is. Any of you know the phrase prosperity gospel? Any of you ever hear that? It also goes sometimes by the the name of health and wealth teaching. basically boils all down to this. Prosperity gospel says that if you just have absolutely the faith that you should in God or the universe, the faith that you must do it, will do it, can do it, and if you believe enough this way, just believe enough, God will absolutely, without reservation, make a way for you to get exactly what you want. Now, I think at times the extremity of that is sort of silly, but in fact it has a very, very dark underside, very dark underbelly, a shadow side. In the last five years or so a guy named Jonathan Walton. He's a professor who has studied the forms of religious community that practice prosperity gospel. And he says that what they have encouraged their members to do people who got very, very dicey ARM mortgages that they believe that God caused the bank literally reached down into the bank, caused the bank to ignore their poor credit score and bless them with their first house. The results, he said, you know, we can laugh about it a little bit, absolutely. But The results, he said, is that these people became prey for absolutely greedy brokers looking to exploit this false hope. Because they did not pay attention enough to what is, what the facts of their life were. Now, I will say this. I do absolutely believe that belief plays a large part in determining how we relate to reality. Emerson, our great sage, said, What we worship, we become. And the word worship means to give worth to. If we give worth to hope, we will become more hopeful. If we worship despair, we will become more despairing. Probably the most famous, well, I don't want to say the most famous, but one of the most famous kids' book of all times is really about this, The Little Engine That Could. Say it with me. I think I can. I think I can. I think I... That makes a difference. By the way, the little engine that could didn't say, "I think I can because I absolutely believe it, and I've set my will so that I will get it." There's <laughs> a difference. There's a difference. I think I can. I think I can." What the little engine that could get so right is the willingness to try can create the conditions under which success happens, but not absolutely and not necessarily. The problem, I think, ultimately with prosperity gospel is not that it's theologically wrong or misunderstands in my understanding what God or the divine is. It's that this form of false hope places us as an individual at the very center of the world. Ultimately, it is a form of spiritual narcissism and it leaves us absolutely alone and cold in the universe when things go wrong. See, because if we believe this, then if we didn't get what we want, either the universe, which used to be a wonderful place when we started believing, becomes absolutely a crummy place, or even worse, we just didn't believe enough. We just didn't get it. We're the ones who are defective. Instead of saying, sometimes, you know what, not everything works out exactly as we would hope it to be. The loneliness of this kind of spiritual narcissism, is why many people ultimately turn away from religion when it peddles this kind of false hope. I think really it comes down to the promises, the ultimate promises of why you're here, why we're here, what we consider spirituality and religion all to be about. Is it fundamentally about getting something or about the opportunity to become someone? Is it about the opportunity... Or the invitation to experience an abundance of possessions or is it about the invitation to grow an abundant and loving character that can face what is and ask what if in any circumstance and in any condition it's another kind of false hope as well and sometimes religions talk about it but even more drugs alcohol shopping sometimes relationships, it promises this, that feeling of that instantaneous high. The promise to take all the pain away and take all the uncertainty away and make you feel good without qualification. This is an addicted way of thinking, and it has led some of us, including myself, to the actual experience of being addicted. But for those of us who have found our way to the other side and into recovery, I think we can recognize the truth of what the Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron said when she talked about what real spirituality, real awakening is like. She says that feeling emotional upheaval is not a spiritual faux pas. See, for it is only when we can dwell in the places that scare us, in the places that frighten you, That you can really experience true equanimity, true peace, and it becomes unshakable. See, we cannot stuff our fears in a sack and throw them in a river without drowning ourselves simultaneously. Fear has a very paradoxical kind of physics to it. And I'm not talking about the fear of physical danger. If you find yourself in that kind of circumstance, obviously, just get away, save yourself. But fear, mental anguish, anxiety has a paradoxical physics in it in this way, which is the more psychic distance we try to gain from our fears, the greater, I guarantee you, the greater the influence of those fears over us will be. The more distance and running away we try to gain, the more we will be held. And I love Satchel Page, but he was absolutely wrong when he said... ...don't turn around because something might be gaining on you. I'm going to say, turn around and face it. (laughs) Turn around and face it. See, if we run away from our fears, we will also run away from our lives. And we will find that precious little life is left for us to actually inhabit. I think that rather than running away, life's great promise... ...is the promise of return. The promise of reunion. The promise of life being reunited with life that goes by so many names but is an ultimate truth about who we are and who we can be. Some of you might know the words acceptance and commitment therapy. It's a school, a therapeutic school. And I want to say the reason I'm going to talk about it right now is that it's very different from the way some therapeutic techniques work. I think a lot of therapeutic techniques either pop or more traditional work off what I call the George Clinton theory. Not the Bill Clinton theory, the George Clinton theory. Parliament, funkadelic, you know, Amazing, amazing song leader and all his different voices and visages. But he said this, or sang this rather, he said, free your mind and your ass will follow. (laughs) Which is basically what a lot of therapies say. Understand enough, comprehend what the point is, get it, and then you can walk forward into your life. Acceptance and commitment therapy says something different. Accept where your mind is, and also move your ass, and both will change. Both and. It has much in common with different, what they call contemplative, spiritual practices, which basically say, I mean, there's an infinite variety of these, but in many ways say, follow the mind, follow your mind, and open your heart, stop fighting yourself so that true understanding and not just understanding but wisdom compassion might follow stop fighting yourself and start relating to yourself father thomas keating is a catholic teacher he's the teacher of what's called contemplative prayer and i have to say when i first got one of his cds listened to him talking and uh, preaching and teaching about maybe 10 years ago i love that phrase contemplative prayer Sounded so peaceful, so esoteric. And this was at a very, um, very sort of internally chaotic time in my life. So I wanted to get contemplative. And boy, was I disappointed when he said that contemplative prayer is not peaceful at all, not at first. Because what he says and what he teaches is that if we truly sit in prayer, or in meditation or any kind of contemplative practice with our lives we will see truly bubbling up what we may have held down for a very long time which is what he calls the afflictive emotions anger jealousy shame guilt fear and he says the way that we understand these demons in our lives is not by doing battle with them but by understanding them paradoxically accepting them And then through that acceptance, knowing real, true change. It means having the character to be able to listen to the call of deep spiritual longing even in the midst of our chaos. Irving Berlin put it this way. He says, let's face the the music and dance. Let's face the music and dance. What is? And then... What if. So how do you... How do you get a sense of what is and what if? And how do you balance the two? I'm going to ask you to think about this. I'm going to ask for your hands, a show of hands, in just a second. But I'm going to use some sociological terms here. Behavioral economists. They talk about maximizers and satisfiers. Maximizers and satisfiers. Satisfiers are those people who say... It's good enough. What's here, what is, it's good enough. Maximizers are always searching for the best. Each has its upside and each has its downside. Maximizers can be absolutely beautiful dreamers, visionaries seeing something on the horizon of their lives that no one has ever seen before and wanting to call that into reality. Or maximizers can be absolutely awful, unaccepting perfectionists. Satisfiers can be wonderfully grounded, soulfully accepting people, just saying it's here, I'll deal with it, and it's good enough. Or satisfiers can be so fearfully complacent that they focus only on what is that they will never seek more out of life. Now I'm going to tell a little bit about myself here. I live in a household and in a marriage in which one of us is absolutely a satisfier and one of us is absolutely a maximizer. Now, I was called to launch a new congregation, so see if you can guess which one I am. <laughs> when we communicate well, we have a realistic sense, a grounded sense of possibility. A grounded sense of what I was talking about before is that sober hope. When we're not communicating so well, well, we're not talking Mars and Venus distance here. It's like one of us is in the Milky Way and the other of us is in the galaxy far, far away. Now, which one of us is right? Neither. Which one of us is wrong? Neither. Because in our marriage, in our household, and indeed what we're trying to do here at Wellsprings is not aim for perfection, but instead strive for wholeness. We are seeking fullness, not flawlessness. So I want to ask you right now, are you a satisfier or are you a maximizer? Do you have a what if disposition or a what is mindset? Let's see the show of hands. Which of you you think? And again, if it's a fifty one forty nine, pick the fifty one percent side, that's all right. It's an informal, non scientific poll. Which of you are satisfiers? Okay. You can lower your hands. And the rest of you, maximizers? Damn, we are well balanced. <laughs> that was almost about 50-50. That was great. We'd really have to seek for some different people if we were 90-10 either direction. Now, for my fellow what-if maximizers, fellow dreamers, let's try, especially in this next week, when you find yourself with that what-if kind of mindset, and nothing wrong with it, it's good, it's who we are, but try and train yourself to ask, what are the facts on the ground? Try and balance yourself out by asking, what's actually here? Because I know I can put on those rose-colored glasses and say, I will make reality into what I want it to be. And then we wonder why we are so bitterly disappointed until we dream the next irresponsible dream. (laughs) Now, if you are one of the satisfiers, if you're one of the people who wants those facts in the ground, what I encourage you to recognize is this. The facts are going to change. What is is not stable. What is is impermanent. And because of this, what is can also give rise to possibility and to hope and to what will be. Recognize that the reality we seek although deep is never stable, never unchanging. So think about that this coming week from your opposite perspective, your shadow side, as Jung would call it. Throw our great teacher, our great Unitarian teacher, in the conclusion to his wonderful book, his experiment in what he called intentional living that all of us are invited to do, not just on the banks of Walden Pond, but here, right here, right now. He implores us to do both, satisfiers and maximizers, what if people and what is people. He said, and I think many of you have heard this before, but listen to it again with fresh ears and an open mind. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost, maximizers. That is where they should be. Now, put the foundations under them. And a few paragraphs later, he talks maybe to some of those what-is folks. Face truly, face truly what your life is. He says, however mean your life is, meet it and live it. Do not shun it and call it hard names. It is not as bad as you are. Paraphrasing what he said there a little bit. Meet it and live it. What we need and who we need to be for ourselves, for our families, in our jobs, for our world, and as a congregation right now. We are called to have tough minds and clear eyes and tender hearts. Sounds a little bit like Lucky Charms. (laughs) Tough minds, clear eyes, and tender hearts. I'm going to market that as a breakfast cereal. See, fear... Or false hope. It can freeze the mind. Or it can cloud the eye. Or it can numb the heart. We're called to have tough minds that are unafraid to investigate. And ask the questions before we know the answers. We're called to have clear eyes. That can look at the world for what it is. And also be perceptive enough. Perceptive enough. To see what lies hidden as a potential. But tough minds and clear eyes are only as good as the last one. The tender heart. Hearts tender enough to truly love. Love what is, love ourselves, love each other, and love what if. Simply love and trust that that will help provide us a way forward. Through this uncertainty, not knowing how long it will last, just love. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Spirit of this life, I would ask that in your many appearances... In your many manifestations. That you would bless all of us. That you would bless these people. That we would have continually the gift to face uncertainty through the use of our gifts. That we can be who we are. And we can accept who we are. And that we will do the utmost that we can. Being, doing, and loving. Let us trust the path of these in our lives, and we know that through this a narrow path will become an abundant one wherever it will take us. Amen.